You're listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast, a recording of the Sunday sermons from Christ Church Toronto. Christ Church Toronto is a new church in Toronto's East End that seeks to practice the ancient Christian faith today. We would love for you to join us in the future, but until then, please turn your attention to the scripture reading. The scripture reading this morning is from Book of John, chapter 17, verse 11b to 23. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. As for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. This is the word of the Lord for our church, and it is given for our good. Thank you, Diana. Let's pray, and then we'll spend some time reflecting on this passage. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, we now, as your church, come before you humbly and ask as your son prayed that you would sanctify us by this truth. Your word is truth. Use this, your word, to convict us of our sins, to give to us hope where we lack it. Father, I pray that your spirit would be so real and present in our room that no one would leave here without being able to say they've heard from you this morning. Speak, Father, for we, your church, are listening. Amen. Amen. Well, for the Lenten season, we've been uh, following this prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17. We'll look at it again next week, and then it will be Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. We'll start another sermon series after that on Elijah and Elisha. And this is Jesus' sort of last prayer, well, the longest prayer that we have of his recorded in the scriptures, and it's his last sort of testament before he gets arrested and brought into trial eventually to be crucified. And this passage, we actually see with abundant clarity that yes, Jesus is praying for his disciples, those faces that he would have recognized around him. But he also says in verse 20 that he's also praying for those who would believe the words of his disciples. And what he means is that first generation of church, which would pass it on to the second generation and third generation. And what that means is verse 20 tells us he's praying for us He's praying for those of us who would say we hold on to Jesus' words and we believe them. Now listen, I can't think of a more important passage, especially verses 20 through 23, for us to hear this morning. 
I mean, this is the first Sunday where our disagreements are allowed to be made abundantly visible. (laughs) We can see who wears masks, who doesn't. It'd be so easy for rifts to split inside of our church. Society is fragmenting everywhere we look. Many people feel estranged from society, estranged from their neighbors. Even people here are cut off from their own family members. But thanks be to God, the church around the world has been unified in the face of COVID. No conflict in the church, right? That's a joke for those of you who are visiting and know nothing about the church. In some senses, and I might be wrong and I might be hypersensitive, but it feels like the fragmentation of society is, is multiplied greatly inside of the church. Not necessarily our church, but the church generally. I was in Alberta last week uh, leading a preaching workshop, and I can't, I can't overemphasize how hard COVID has been on the body of Christ. Every meal I sat down with other pastors, I heard discussions of the stress and division and disunity that response to COVID had evoked in every church, no matter what position they took related to response to COVID. I actually felt kind of uncomfortable because by and large, our church has been tremendously unified, mostly because we didn't own a building and we didn't have much to fight on. So I shared stories about that guy that worked out without his shirt on, the guy that had the perfect abs during my sermon and things like this, how we were persecuted that way. (laughs) Listen, Jesus is praying for us. He's not just praying for our church, but he's praying that all churches would be deeply, deeply unified. But if I'm honest with you, as I study this passage, cynicism sweeps over any optimism I have about this particular prayer. Is there even a point at this time in reflecting on Jesus' call for unity, or should we just hold off on this till the dust settles about COVID response, till we have more data about who was right and who was wrong? Is it right for us to reflect on unity now? And I think the answer is absolutely Jesus is soon to be martyred, and this is, the, this is how he uses his last time on earth before he is to be martyred. He offers up this particular prayer, and he prays for unity, and we ha- have to believe the Father is not ignoring this prayer. This prayer is still to this day going into the ears of the Father, and the Father is obeying it. He's, he's hearing this prayer, and he's agreeing with it, and he's granting to his church unity And though it feels like we're in a time of incredible fragmentation and disunity, maybe God's Spirit is doing something. Maybe he's doing yet again what he does all the time, which is killing things so that they might be resurrected and made new. So here's what I want to look at this morning. Here's my sermon outline. First, should we wear masks? Should we get a fourth booster? (laughs) I'm kidding. (laughs) Another joke. Clearly nervous about the first Sunday without masks. I want to first ask, what is this disunity, or what is this unity, sorry, that Jesus is praying for? It's the first thing I want to look at. What is this unity Jesus is praying for? Second, why does Jesus pray for this unity? And third, I want to look at how this unity is possible, okay? So first, let's ask, Jesus is clearly praying for unity, but what is this unity he's praying for? This sounds sort of simple. He wants the church to be unified, but what exactly is he, he praying for? And as I stated before, he's not just praying for his disciples. He makes clear in verse 20 that he's praying for those who believe in Jesus through the testimony, through the words of the disciples. And what does he want for them? He says it clearly in verse 21, that they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Now, what is this unity Jesus is praying for here? 
He's praying for some mysterious and deep oneness. A oneness that is evoked from or birthed out of a loyalty to Jesus, especially the Jesus that is revealed in the words of the apostles, what we might call the New Testament. So what is this <clears throat> unity Jesus is praying for? Well, it'd be tempted, tempting to say, Jesus is praying that we all just get along, that we accept one another, that we never challenge one another. But that would be to misunderstand Jesus' prayer even in these three verses. He says so clearly, this is a unity that must be grounded on a loyalty to him as revealed in the apostles' teaching. So whatever this unity is, if it's disconnected from a commitment to God's word, a robust commitment to God's word, this isn't the unity Jesus is praying for. It's a unity that is committed to the revelation of Jesus, but it's modeled off of this mysterious oneness Jesus has with the Father. Now, what does this mean? Verse 21, may they be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. And understand this, and go with me here for a second. You have to understand the big picture of the Bible. It all starts with this three-in-one God, what we call the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, together in eternity past, living in a mutual adoring and delighting and loving relationship. In a sense, passing love one to another and evoking love out of one another, a full commitment to the other's good throughout all eternity. And what this means is, in the Christian story, in a way that other monotheistic religions can't say, love is at the core of who our God is. Love, from eternity past, is at the core of reality. And in many ways, the creation story itself, the whole reason and impetus for the creation story is the God of love wanting to share this love, to see this love dance and spread around into the created order. So God creates the world and all, of in it, all that is in it. All of the creation that you see is a theater for his glory to make clear. But there is one crown jewel of his creation that bears his image, his mark, more than anything else, and it's the human beings. You know this story if you grew up around the Bible. And you'll remember that what it means to bear God's image is something that is done with others. What, do we, what does Adam hear right away? It is not good that man should be alone. This is more than just a statement about marriage. It's saying a lot about community, and it shouldn't surprise us. This God has existed, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in eternity past. Creation's an overflow of the love that exists in, this relation, in these eternal relationships and it shouldn't surprise us that if humanity is going to bear God's image, it's going to have to do with having relationships. But what's the major conflict of the Bible? You know it. Our first parents commit treason, what the Bible calls sin against their creator. And the consequences of their rebellion is that sin enters into this world and alienation begins to exist not only between creation and God, but these image bearers in one another. Adam and Eve are immediately told they're going to be at in a war for power. So relationships, most beautifully pictured in Adam's relationship with Eve, were created to give us a glimpse into who God is, into his very nature. And instead, after sin enters the world, relationships now become a theater for conflict and self-absorption. And the more the conflict births, the more it feels that the image of God is being faded and scrubbed away. But Jesus is saying in his prayer that he's come to fix this. He's going to restore this mess we have found ourselves in. He's come to give us not just forgiveness for our sins, but to set us free from the power of sin. 
We'll know that with certainty when he resurrects from the dead. He wants this image of God that is inside of all of us. He wants it not to be blurry, but to shine with crystal clarity. And the way he sees that happening is through these relationships being restored. Think of a glow stick. I don't know if anyone knows how glow sticks work. But inside the glow stick, there's a container of chemicals that is in thin glass that's floating in other chemicals. That's why when you crack the glow stick, you crack this glass, those chemicals that have been separated all of a sudden now start to collide. And as they collide, a chemical reaction takes place. Others of you in this congregation could tell at detail how that works out. I've got no clue. I'm taking this by faith. But when that chemical reaction happens, then the glow comes. Jesus is saying this, and maybe you could follow it this way. What sin has done to me and you is it's caused us to live in this world with a thin layer of glass put over this image of God that's inside of us. A thin layer of protective barrier. We have to watch out for our own good. We can't let people encroach upon us. We've got to protect ourselves because things could get ugly. And what Jesus is praying here is he's praying that as his people hear the word of him, as they hear about his teaching, as they submit to Jesus Christ, as they say, not my will be done, but your will be done. I'm not the Lord and master of this world. You're the Lord and master of this world. As they come to that experience of confessing their sins, it's like that glow stick cracking, okay? And as it cracks, as that protective layer begins to crack and those chemicals begin to seep into the church with others, the glow of the image of God begins to radiate again inside the church. Is this making sense? And this is why Jesus prays this way, that they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. This is the, the mysterious oneness that Jesus is praying for. It's a, a loyalty and a commitment to Jesus as revealed in his word that makes us into the type of people that begin to watch out for the good of the other over our own. Maybe say it one more time. What Jesus is praying for and what this unity is, is a profound commitment to love one another, birthed out of a unity, or birthed out of a loyalty to Jesus as is found in the written scriptures, okay? So this is what Jesus is praying for. This is the type of unity. It's not just let's all get along, Let's all accept each other. No. Let's be loyal to Jesus Christ, especially as we submit to and see it in the scriptures. And at birth out of that loyalty becomes a loving commitment to watch out for the good of others over our own. This is the unity that Jesus is praying for. But let's ask, why does Jesus pray for this kind of unity? Two times in slightly different ways, he uh, kind of comes back to the purpose of this oneness. He answers the why question. Look at verse 21. Towards the end, he says, so that... The world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 23, second half. Uh, may they become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love me, them even as you love me. Why does Jesus pray for this unity? And I hope you see this. Because Jesus believes, and I'll give you a hint. If he believes it, it's probably true. He believes that as we struggle to love one another, struggle to live lives that are actually watching out for the good of the other, sometimes even more than our own, extraordinarily more than our own good, as we sacrifice for one another, especially the sacrifice that comes birthed out of our loyalty to Christ as revealed in the world. Jesus knows the watching world is going to see and they're going to realize that God loves them and that he sent Jesus to reveal his very nature. 
Now, I hope you understand what Jesus is praying for and saying. I mean, listen to this very clearly. How is Christianity going to flourish in this world according to this prayer? How is it going to spread? Maybe more personally, how are your neighbors ever going to come to a place where they know God's love? What is Jesus saying? Through wonderful outreach programs, gifted Christian ministers who preach amazing sermons that get viewed by four people on YouTube. Thank you very much. You know, how is this going to spread? Charismatic leaders. I hope you hear what Jesus is saying. He's saying something that I know we all know to be true, but it's hard for us to understand. Most people will convert to Christian community before they convert to Christ, okay? Most people will convert to Christian community before they convert to Christ. What do I mean by that? Tons of people read the Bible, explore the Bible, find Jesus provocative, engaging. But it's when you get absorbed into Christian community. And when you find that there might actually be a community in this city that people actually watch out for the good of others over their own. Not perfectly. It's a struggle. When you catch a glimpse of that, this is how they know that God loves them and that the story of Jesus is real. And here's what Jesus is saying. This is my strategy. There's no other plan. The unity that you pursue, the oneness you pursue with one another, this is how my message is going to flourish. This is how it's going to spread to the ends of the earth. Now listen, it's almost impossible for me to say this out loud. Someone who's been laboring to plant the church, thinking hard about outreach strategies to engage with our neighbors. I've become cynical, and I've become even more cynical as COVID has seen these divisions, rifts, drive the church deeper and deeper and deeper. But if this passage has taught me anything, it's that I need to slow down trafficking in all of these divisions that exist in the church. And I need to realize this is Jesus' strategy. We've gone through two years where most of our interactions came through pixels and group chat. Life felt somewhat shallow and meaningless. We have taken for granted the easier time when, when, it was so, when relationships were so available. It's been so difficult. But let me assure you, God's spirit is doing something. And if you find anyone, anyone in our church who maybe was away from the church and has come back, or someone who had no connection with the gospel and came into a church and really believed in Jesus, you're going to find that Christian community plays a significant role. The love Christians have one for another plays a significant role in their faith getting deep, deep roots. Maybe as a sidebar, I mean, this is why I'm not optimistic about guys like, let's say, Jordan Peterson making vague comments about trusting Jesus. Until I find that he's rooted into a community where he sees and experiences the love of Christ in his sisters and brothers, and he's wrestling through the cause of Christ, then I think there might be cause for confidence. But vague comments about submitting to Jesus are a good start, but they're not the end. This is Jesus' strategy. And what Jesus is telling me and you, and listen clearly, he is telling us that some of us are going to have to learn to love people profoundly different than us, that annoy us to no end. I mean, right now, if you tell your neighbors you're a Christian, there's a good chance they're going to ask you if you believe the earth is flat and if you believe science is a hoax, right? Right now is not an easy time to publicly identify as a Christian. And what is Jesus saying? The missionary calling of the church to this generation is to work hard. The life, -giving, the life call of the church is to work hard for this deep oneness rooted in loyalty to Christ. That is our calling. That is what we must pursue. And we must be the church that pursues it so that the world doesn't look around and say, well, I see why they're all getting together. 
you know, this is just a sociological phenomenon. They're all here to change business contacts, to add some sort of deeper stability to network. That's why this church exists. This is a great place to network, you know, a great place to, to be a consultant. It can't be like that. We have to watch out for the needs of the others above our own, no matter what the person next to us or across the aisle from us looks like. We have to continue to watch out and pursue unity and oneness with them so that the watching world looks at our church and says, my goodness, something profound, something supernatural just might be going on there. Because people who shouldn't get along care for one another. Why does Jesus pray for this unity? Listen, it's only within a community of love That our God, who reveals himself as existing in a community of love, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, can be fully experienced. Okay? It's only in a community of love. It's only a community of love that can reveal our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a God who's existed as a community of love. Now let's ask, how is this even possible? And I've already gone a little longer than I intended. It feels hopeless. How? Well, we find the hope in the heart of the prayer. What do we read in verse 22? Jesus says, The glory that you have given to me, I have given to them. What is Jesus saying? Well, it's somewhat complicated, okay? Glory is not the most straightforward word, but the glory of God is something about his greatness, his sort of incomprehensible wealth and worth, his unmatched beauty and dignity and honor, that, that, that character of him that makes everybody who learns about him truly and honestly stop and say, Wow, his glory. This glory was meant to be tasted and participated in by humans. That's why Adam is said to bear God's image. Eve is an image bearer of God. The whole point was that they would be pictures of God's glory as how they, in, in the ways in which they love one another and the ways in which they model love, they would reveal God's glory to the watching world. And we know Adam and Eve failed at this. But God in his grace doesn't give up. What does he do? He makes himself known to one man. What's his name? Abraham, right? And he says, Abraham, out of you I'm going to create a nation, a community of love that finally gets it right, that loves justice, that is a city set up on a hill. Finally, we're going to have this community of people uh, from which the glory of God is uh, pictured and depicted and revealed. And how does that work out? If you read any of the prophets, what are they constantly saying? They're constantly so frustrated with Israel because they're failing to reveal God's glory. They're not loving justice. They're not acting with kindness. They're not walking humbly with their God. The glory of God, which should be revealed in this nation, is again fading, getting blurry. What is Jesus calling? In the face of humanity's persistent failures, God sends a new Adam and he sends a new Israel. And Jesus comes, and in ways that we don't fully understand or see coming, he bears a relationship with God's glory that is magnificent, that is marvelous. This is why John's gospel starts by saying, we have seen his glory. But what does Jesus do throughout the gospels? He doesn't just bask in this glory. He doesn't just model this glory in his relationships. He's constantly calling a group of people together, especially 12, to be a new Israel a new group of tribes, a new, new humanity. And he calls and tasks these people to take up the task to, of bearing witness to God's glory in a world in which it, everything feels so faded. So what is our hope? What is our hope? That we can be like Jesus? What is Jesus praying here? 
He's praying that the glory that has been given to him, he tells his father, I have given it to them. Our hope is that somehow we could be so united to Christ, so tied up with Christ, so bonded to Christ, that the glory the Father has given him, that he perfectly models, he then passes on to us. You see, in the face of our first parents rejecting God's word and their glory being trans, tra- exchanged for shame, Jesus comes along and he obeys God's word at every juncture and he takes our shame and, and in the face of it transforms it into glory. And this is what he does for me, and this is what he does for anyone who believes. The second you hear his word and you trust him, you say, he is who he says he is. He is my hope. He is the means by which I can be right with God. He takes the shame that sin has put upon you and the shame that the world is, is, is caught up in, and he exchanges that for, with you for his glory. And he is working more and more that that glory would work out inside of you, not just that you'd be forgiven of your sins, but as we, as we sang, that you'd be saved to sin no more. This is what he's at work doing now. And this is our hope, that as we pursue Jesus, as we seek deep oneness with Jesus, as we trust Jesus, as we are deeper and in, in more real ways united to Jesus, that the glory that the Father has given will begin to flow in and through us, and we will then go out and seek to serve and love those who are different than us, those who annoy us, those we don't have time for, We'll watch out for their goods above our own, and God's glory will be more clearly manifest in this world than what our neighbors will see, and they'll know God loves them. They'll know the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are the real and true God from all creation. Let me end with just some practical applications. First, pray for the unity of the church. This has got to be part of our daily habits, okay? But pray for the unity of the church. And I'm not just saying we pray that the Catholics and the Protestants would learn to get along. That's true, too. Some of us have got to learn to get along with flat earth Christians. I don't want anything to do with, if I could be honest. We've got to pray that the church would be unified, okay? We have to pray for their unity even daily. If this unity comes from the testimony of the apostles, part of how we're going to grow in our unity, though, is learning to read God's word one with another. This could be as simple as texting someone saying, what are you reading in the Bible? What have you been learning about God from the Bible? Or even asking someone as you have coffee on the way out, If the unity has got to be rooted in Jesus as revealed in the scriptures, we've got to be a people who pursue God's word. And if we are pursuing it rightly, it will birth this deep oneness. And let me give one final application. You know, there was a time in which the internet was a profound tool for unity. You know why? Because I could learn about the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. I could learn about the Anglican Church in Nigeria. I could learn about the Anglicans in Australia, the Baptists in Argentina. I could hear their sermons. And in many ways, this was a, a way in which I think the Spirit was using some, uh, uh, giving some humility to all of us. That we're just one little fingernail in the body of Christ. And it, it birthed some kind of unique unity as we found ourselves saying amen to the, the Anglican in Nigeria preaching and the Baptists in Argentina. We found ourselves one in a special way. But the internet has become something now where we can find people who agree with us on 99.9% of our doctrine or our hobby horse. We can, we can find a community of people who are so in line with us and they can continue to reinforce this narrative that everyone else has it wrong and we've got it right. Be very careful about how you engage with Christian content on the internet. And be very careful about the Twitter feeds that you refresh over and over again or the websites you read over and over again. 
If you're going to use this profound tool, you've got to seek to find people who are different than you and, and figure out how they are reading God's word and coming to the conclusions they're coming to. Listen, in conclusion, our Lord prays for unity. What is the unity he's been praying for? It's a commitment one to another, birthed out of loyalty to the Jesus that we find in the scriptures. Why does he pray for this unity? Because a God who exists eternally in love can only be clearly communicated to human beings, only clearly revealed through a community of love. And how is this unity even possible? It has to be something that we find in Christ, the glory that he's been given from the Father. He's willing to give to us. This is our hope. Let's pray. Our Father, we know not long after your son prays this prayer, this plea for unity leads him to have spikes driven through his hands and feet and to bleed and die a gruesome death. He did it so that we could be forgiven, that we could be one. Father, we have created a mess. Satan has had a field day with this pandemic. The church wasn't unified before, but we certainly haven't gotten any better now. Make us one. Humble us. Give us patient ears to hear people who are different than us. Give us a deep and robust commitment in Christ so that as we pursue Christ, we find ourselves walking side by side with people much different than us. And we can find ourselves committed to their good even above our own, even now as you, Father, with the Son and the Holy Spirit, eternally exist and strive towards. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ChristChurchToronto.ca or email us at info at ChristChurchToronto.ca.